Hello out there. My name is Dan Roberts, and thank you for joining me. Welcome to another episode of One More Think. Today, I'm going to indulge my therapist concerns and talk a little bit about something that really just um, concerns me professionally, something that I've seen uh, as a trend that is growing in frequency and I think also in potential for harm. And I don't think this is specific to therapy as a profession. I think it's pretty general in society. But it hits my office, it hits my practice in a particular way. What I want to talk about today is something of a paradox that has arisen around what is well understood to be the, the stigma around mental health and mental health diagnosis. The stigma around mental health diagnoses has always been there, it is still certainly there, but it's changing. And it's changing in one particular way that I think is potentially troubling or maybe even damaging. The movement has been that as behavioral health overcomes its stigma of do not talk about it, do not admit that you have uh, emotional health problems, as it overcomes that barrier, there's kind of a, a reflux wave where mental health diagnoses have almost been glorified to the point that it seems to be sought after by many people, especially younger generations. I don't want to throw millennials under the bus. This is not a millennial thing or a Gen X thing or a Gen Z thing. But it seems to be that in the younger population, especially adolescents, there is an urge or a drive to seek out mental health diagnoses. And I think this has multiple origins, and I wanna talk about those today. I was recently listening to the radio as I was driving, and uh, a Billie Eilish song came on that I didn't previously, that I wasn't previously familiar with. And as I listened to the lyrics, I realized the entire song was more or less her talking about her various mental illnesses and the medications she was on and the impact that was having. A few years ago, there was a film, 13 Reasons, which got a lot of press for glorifying suicide, especially among teenagers. And there was a lot of discussion around that about visualization or, or visibility of mental health issues and validation of mental health issues, both for and against the film. But the film itself drew a very bright light onto the idea of mental health illness, mental health diagnoses and almost seeking out one as if it was necessary. And in general, in pop culture, references to anxiety as a diagnosis, depression as a diagnosis, open admission of taking mental health medications, antidepressants, anxiolytics, Xanax, those are through the roof. And they've become almost pedestrian. It's almost a throwaway comment to tell somebody that they can borrow a Xanax if they're having a panic attack or you know to tell somebody that they need to change their medication if their depression is getting worse. It's become almost assumed that anybody who is having a mental health struggle or an emotional struggle must therefore also have a diagnosis of a mental health illness. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that mental health diagnoses are being used as a badge of honor. 
it seems though that formal diagnosis has now t is now taken to be a validation of the reality of a person's suffering, which might be more of a commentary on larger society. Because until a medical professional says that your problems are real, they aren't. So your suffering, internal or external, only counts when it's given the right label. And those labels are being sought after more energetically than ever before, or so it seems. People are not just comfortable with the idea of the label, they specifically want them. And I wonder if this is maybe because of a fading of empathy in the absence of the label, so that people feel that they need the label in order to be taken seriously or to be cared for in their suffering. But this corrective swing can easily go too far to the point that people are seeking out labels that they don't actually qualify for, if I can use that term. Or maybe they're seeking out a label just so they can feel validated in general, feel like they're seen or recognized. So the problem with this is that it creates a vanishing plateau of normal, in quotations, right? To the point that a child that is worried about an upcoming test at school is more likely to assume they have anxiety and to self-diagnose with themselves with a problem than to assume that they are just worried about a big test at a level that is healthy and normal and productive. In my work currently, I specialize in PTSD. And as I've already mentioned in a previous podcast episode, PTSD has a specific set of diagnostic criteria that must be met in order for a person to be actually officially diagnosed with PTSD. Each one of those individual subset symptoms is problematic all by itself. It's only when all of those symptoms come together over the correct period of time that a PTSD diagnosis is valid or warranted. But you can have a subset of the cluster, maybe not meet the whole diagnostic criteria and still be suffering pretty, pretty significantly. So, you know, in case in point, I had a, a patient come in not too long ago whose primary complaint was that he was overly vigilant, right? That he was always felt like there was a threat out there and he was always assessing for threat. And he had what he called an exaggerated startle response. And when I dug into that and tried to see what his exaggerated startle response was, it turns out his startle response wasn't exaggerated at all. If a loud noise happened around him, he would jump, he would look around to see what it was, which is pretty much what everybody does. And I asked him how long it took him to calm down from his startle response, and he said, you know, between 10 to 15 seconds. That's not exaggerated. That is a perfectly normal startle response. But he had come to view himself as being ill. And he was seeking out a PTSD diagnosis. In fact, he'd been referred to my clinic for PTSD by another provider because he had insisted that he had PTSD. Those symptoms that he was talking about are the unavoidable result of military training. He was trained over the course of his career to look for threat, to, to, to look at the rooftops to see if there might be a sniper, to examine the entrances and exits of every room he goes into for egress and entry points. He was trained to look at members of a crowd to see who might have a weapon and who might be a threat, whose behavior might be 
incorrect for the uh, circumstances. These are things he learned to do. Just like a police officer learns to do the same things, just like anybody who studies martial arts learns to look at people and size them up to think, what would it be like to take them on? Do I think this person knows how to fight? Just like somebody who has studied fashion walks into a room and looks at people's shoes and pants and belts in a way that somebody who has never studied fashion wouldn't even think to. This is not pathology by itself. Heightened awareness is a result of training and learning, result of experience, not diagnosable, right? And these unavoidable consequences of learning and training are far more common than full PTSD, but since they do exist in the cluster of symptoms that altogether make up PTSD, a lot of people who have these will tell themselves that they must therefore have an illness, Especially if, some, if they start to get negative consequences in their lives, if they don't like to go to crowded places because they're aware of so many different threats that can happen, and then somebody makes fun of them or, or disparages them in some way because they avoid crowded places, well, then that person is very likely to say, my avoidance of crowded places must therefore mean I am sick. But that would be the exact same thing as somebody who has studied fashion their whole life, liking to avoid the mall because they, it, it is painful to them to see people walking around in mismatched outfits, or somebody who has studied music their entire life, preferring to avoid a high school band performance because it's painful to their ears to hear people play music out of tune. We wouldn't pathologize somebody for a preference, but very many people do pathologize themselves when their own preferences tend to move towards the level of discomfort or oddity in their own life. And this is where people start to self-pathologize and seek out these labels. So there's a couple of cases that I've seen over the last, you know, over the course of the last, oh, I don't know, decade or more, that really stand out. They were suffering, but they didn't meet the full cri diagnostic criteria of any specific mental health disorder. And they came to me seeking the validation of a diagnosis and the pressure was very real for me to put that label on them so that they could walk away at least being able to say, see, I am this way because I have this disorder. So there was one, uh, the first guy that I'll always remember, he came into the clinic when I was still in active duty. And according to him, his symptoms were, he had no... Uh, intrusive thoughts, no nightmares, no, no struggles with specific memories of uh, traumatic events. But he expressed that he was hypervigilant, always looking for threats, always seeing threats where others did not. And he tended to be aggressive. So the question that I had to answer and had to come to terms with myself was how do I validate his struggles while recognizing that he does not meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And in his particular case, this was a very important question because he was angling, at first it was subtle, but later it became very overt. He was angling for a disability rating and a medical discharge from the military. So there was a, a, there was a medical and a financial incentive for him to get the diagnosis he was looking for, but to his credit, he wasn't willing to overtly lie on all of his questionnaires, and he came away at sub-threshold for PTSD. 
his aggression was a big problem. His anger management issues were a big problem. And his hypervigilance exacerbated those anger problems, but he did not have PTSD. What he had was an emotional regulation issue that it turned out went way back into his childhood. A little bit of digging found out that he was getting in neighborhood fights as soon as he, like from, from his earliest memory when he was five and six years old, if somebody did something he didn't like, he would get very angry, interpret it as a personal insult, and feel like he had to take it out on someone. If anything, after he joined the military and went to combat, he got a better handle on his anger than he had before. That's just his particular case, but he's not uncommon. There was another woman who came uh, into my care who was escaping an emotionally abusive relationship. And her complaints were that she had poor sleep and nightmares, that she was constantly worried, and that whenever her phone rang, she would panic and start to hyperventilate and freak out to the point that she would have sweaty hands and um, you know, she would genuinely be physically panicking. So the question then arises, are her reactions pathological? Are they disease? Or are they natural formations of anyone in a post-abuse situation? So how do I, as a therapist, help her feel validated and help her find solutions to her problems and help her feel that her problems are real and important and significant without applying the PTSD label where it doesn't fit? because it didn't fit for her. She didn't, have, she didn't have a significant enough trauma. Her trauma didn't meet criterion A. There was no threat to life. There was no concern about her or anyone else's immediate physical safety. Her currently, her, her now ex-husband was emotionally abusive and very manipulative and by all accounts, a terrible human being. However, what his wife carried away from that relationship was certainly she was traumatized, but she did not have post-traumatic stress disorder because her reactions were normal and bounded within the typical response that anyone who is healthy must have after escaping a traumatic relationship. So her startling when the phone rang made sense because it was likely that her spouse would be on the phone trying to give her another round of emotional abuse and gaslighting and haranguing her because he had done it multiple, multiple times. If you put your hand on the stove once and get burned, next time somebody turns the stove on, you're going to be careful where you put your hand. That is learned protective behavior, not pathological. The extent of her panic was perhaps unhelpful. That she, that she had that strong of a panic response when the phone would ring was not healthy for her and certainly didn't lead to good conversations with anybody who called. Those are things that we can work on. Those are along the lines of a panic response or phobic responses, not PTSD. She came to my clinic believing that she had PTSD though, and that was an interesting conversation to have to help her see that her non-pathological symptoms were still valid and still real and still important, but not at the level of the diagnosis she thought she had. There's another guy I worked with who had a tragedy happen that his young child had died when, uh, when the child was about five years old. And I saw the man about five years later, four or five years after his son had died. And he came in 
finally seeking help for what he labeled for himself as being a chronic depression. And that's how he how he framed it. He said, yeah, I've been depressed ever since my son died. And immediately I thought as a clinician, why does it have to be depression? Why can't this be grief? Why can't this be an overwhelming, life-altering sadness, which I think anyone would feel at the death of a child? Why does it need to be a disease? Why do we need to understand pervasive, gut-wrenching sadness as being depressive disorder when, as I look at it, that kind of sadness in that circumstance tells me how deeply the son was loved and how connected the father was to him and how bereft he is now that his son is dead and how he's struggling to make sense of it all and working through the tragedy of his life. What should that look like? Should he be happy within weeks or months or years? What's the timeline that he's given himself? Whatever it was, he exceeded it. And now he has put a label on himself of being depressed when what I saw was a grieving father. So as a clinician, how do we keep diagnostic integrity while still acknowledging the tremendous potential power of normal pain, of healthy, normal life, which can sometimes go horribly wrong. I had another woman who came into my clinic who had been kind of high, uh, in the army we called her high, we would have, we would have called her high speed. Um, she was just a high tempo individual, neurotic, but very successful, very driven. And she had been told by some of her friends that she was having panic attacks, as they described them. But when she came into the clinic, seeking assistance for these panic attacks, what she described wasn't a panic attack. It wasn't even an anxiety attack. What she described were periods of intense thought where she couldn't stop ruminating about a specific problem or job or whatever to the point that it distracted her. And if she would sit down to watch a movie, she had to think about the problem or the thing she was working on. If she was having a conversation with friends, she would get distracted and go thinking about the thing that, that she was supposed to do at work. And her friends would notice that she was distracted. And when she would explain it, she would say, oh, I just, I, I'm, I've got this thing at work I'm working on. I just can't stop thinking about it. And I get so, you know, worked up about what I need to do that I can't sleep. And sometimes I'll, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and have to work on this project that I have at work. So somebody, probably very well-intentioned, but not excellently informed, told her that those were panic attacks, which they clearly were not. The problem was when she came into my clinic, she had formed friendships and joined groups, support groups for women who were having panic attacks. She had built something of an identity around this idea. And it was this group of women who told her that she needed to come into therapy to get help for her panic attacks. So I had to be very careful talking with her about what her diagnostic profile actually was. I couldn't just yank the carpet out from under her feet and say, nope, you don't have panic attacks. What you have is some sort of low-grade chronic anxiety, more like a personality disorder, uh, probably it's something like obsessive compulsive personality disorder, uh, was, the, was the best fit for her diagnostically. But that wasn't what she had identified with. That was problematic for her. So I had to be very cautious, very careful making sure I built rapport with her to the point that we could have fluid discussions about what it might or might not be 
and move her away from this concrete understanding she had that her problem was panic attacks. These things are tricky. All of these cases were tricky. So many of our cases in mental health are tricky. But this is the line that we as therapists have to walk. We must be not only the caretakers of the labels of pathology, we have to be the guardians of normal. Because if all distress is disease, then our diagnostic labels lose their power and utility. To quote the Incredibles, right? If everyone is special, nobody is special. Well, the same is true on the other side of the spectrum. If everyone is sick, no one is sick. This gradual dilution of diagnostic functionality is very harmful because it puts people who have a genuine severe depression. It puts these people who are at the level of disability to the point that they can't feed themselves because of their depression. They can't take a shower. They can't do basic life functions because of their depression. And it puts them in the same box with somebody who feels like they aren't as happy as they ought to be when something good happens. These are massively different things. And it is damaging to both individuals in, in very clear ways if we tell both of them they have the same thing. If somebody who is worried about a college exam is put in the same box diagnostically as somebody who has such a paralyzing fear and worry about generally everything in the world, what have we done? We've told the person who is worried about a test that they're incredibly sick. And we've also told the person who is actually incredibly sick that there's nothing really wrong with them. That they're just overreacting to something. And that's not true on both sides. It's damaging to both people. I see it all the time in my practice. I think the problem is that these damages happen on an individual level. There's no pandemic. There's no universal experience of this. But as a therapist, when I see people one after another after another who have either been overly pathologized for normal behavior and therefore damaged because they think they're sick when they're not, or people who are genuinely very ill but have been thrown into this box with people who are only slightly suffering and feel like their illness is therefore not really a thing, or when they see how much they suffer and how much they're limited, and then they look at somebody else who has the same diagnosis, who is not limited in the same way at all, they start to think, oh, I'm, there must be something else wrong with me. My diagnosis of anxiety is not sufficient to describe how many problems I have because my sister also has anxiety and she just takes a pill or two a week because she has a hard time falling asleep. If both of those people have anxiety, the one with true pathology feels paralyzed to get more help because their problem has been diluted down to uselessness. And that's, man, that's a difficult burden to put on somebody's shoulders who is already struggling with severe mental health anyway. So I guess the point I'm driving at here is that we need to retain a clear definition of normal. We need to retain a, a definition of what healthy reactions are to unpleasant stimuli and circumstances. 
It is not healthy when we as a, as a society turn any deviation from ideal into disease. This is, in itself, disease-promoting. It turns a normal bad day or normal sadness or normal worry into pathology, leaving no room at all for normal anything anywhere. On the one hand, I'm happy for many people that they are finally able to talk about their internal struggles, their mental health problems, the issues that they face on a daily basis so that they can reach out and get help. The only thing I regret is that that help seems to need to have a diagnostic label on it. And we can talk about this, the, the, the reasons for this forever and ever. Maybe it's Insurance companies who insist that there needs to be a major diagnosis coded in order for them to pay for the services. That's a big part of the problem. We can talk about the fact that the drugs that are prescribed to treat the symptoms of these illnesses require a diagnosis in order to validate the prescription, but the prescriptions treat the symptoms, not the illness. So somebody who is a little depressed is treated just as well as somebody who actually has full-on clinical depression. By the same medication, they can both be helped. So therefore, the pressure on the prescribers is to lump them both diagnostically into the same category. Medicine does not do well in the vague gray area between complete health and complete dysfunction. Right? Like as they say, there's no such thing as being a little pregnant or having a little cancer. Right? You either are or are not qualified for a diagnosis. But that's not true in mental health. There's a very, very well-blended gray zone between normal, healthy sadness as a response to bad events and the starting level of depression, where that sadness has taken on a pathological nature. It is no longer a healthy response or even a response at all to negative events, but rather is a pervasive emotional state that is not responsive to a specific event. When does that transition happen? Five months after a loss? Five years after a loss? Nobody knows. I don't know. But it is important that we, that we validate that specific distinction. In mental health, so many of our diagnoses do exist on this spectrum. But culturally, medicinally, we suck at spectrums. And that's why I think we're left with the situation we're in. People are finally okay talking about their diagnoses, talking about their mental health issues, being open with their struggles. And in order for them to feel like their struggles have been validated, they're seeking out more and more the label, the official diagnosis, even when that diagnosis does not accurately apply to them. This has many problems. I'm not saying that I have a solution. I don't have a solution for the problem on a macro level. But on a micro level, I would simply challenge everyone who is in the, in the profession of therapy to give some extra thought to these diagnostic labels and to make doubly sure that we are having diagnostic conversations with our patients. Because our bias, too, is very strong. There's a very strong pressure for us to give the patient the diagnosis that they're seeking, specifically because it is so validating to get the label. However, if we're doing our job and forming that genuine rapport 
we can still let someone feel validated and have a clear conversation about what their diagnosis truly is if it doesn't meet the expectations they had coming in. If they're having an adjustment disorder to a setback and that's why their emotions are down, we can tell them that this is an adjustment disorder, not chronic depression. But we must first form the rapport. I think it's so much, so important that I think we should hesitate or maybe just refuse to give diagnoses until rapport is established. Otherwise, rapport will be established via the diagnosis. We tell them what they want to hear. They feel validated because we've put the label on them that they were seeking, and that becomes a way that rapport was built. Well, how do you track that back? How do you, how do you retract that conversation if and when you find out a few weeks in that your patient does not actually meet the diagnostic criteria that you thought they met? Well, that bridge has already been crossed and is difficult to retread. But if we are careful in the initial assessment so that our diagnostic conversation is open and fluid and considers both the pro-diagnostic and the contra-diagnostic elements, that conversation itself builds rapport. We might be the only people our patients ever talk to that they can have an honest conversation with about whether their symptoms do or do not meet diagnostic criteria for the disease they think they have. Of course, we diagnose when it's justified. But if we are not the guardians of the sanctity of the diagnostic criteria, who will be? Pop culture? Adolescent musicians? I think this is highly unlikely that society will change, will move this needle on their own. It must be us. It must be done on an individual basis, corrective as we have individuals or small groups under our care. It may not be enough to change the world, but we're not in therapy to change the world. We're in therapy to change an individual within the world. And if we change enough individuals, at the end of the day, we have changed the world. All right. That's enough for me today. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, this has been One More Think. I'm Dan Roberts. Let's take care of each other.